The square was magic. Where are your human heart? This is a Diabolical Index for Monday, August 26, 2019, where the pages of The Uncanny reside. Corey Dawson, as always, I'm at Moreland Manor, uh, and I have to say, uh, Andrew has never been quite so broken up as he is right now after the, the fantastic, unbelievable, infamous show, I think we can definitely say that, um, at the Legends Barn venue, The Improvised Story Part 2. Choose Your Own Adventure Live, and it was memorable, to say the least. We had people coming up from uh, Southern Kentucky, Michigan, Annapolis, Dayton, everywhere, everywhere. I'm sure I'm missing some places, but there were all kinds of people there. I mean, almost all. Was there anyone missing? I mean, I guess there may have been a couple of people missing from the network, but... Not very many. Everybody was out in force to to support us on the show. And um, Andrew showed up, not quite unexpectedly, but um, 
he had said he was going to make it out there, but then he definitely made it out there. Um, all of a sudden there was just this lunging crash and beer splashing everywhere. And we didn't know what was happening. And, um, yeah, turned out it was Andrew, um, invading the, uh, I don't know, invading the sanctity of the improvisation. It was totally awesome. Made perfect sense. We were lucky to have him there. And uh, it was a great turnout. We had some wonderful comedy. The uh, The show is on Magic Scroll Network video somewhere, right? Yeah, so definitely check that out. The show was a blast. We're already planning others. Um, there's also some rumblings of maybe doing some uh, possible roasts. So we'll keep you posted on that. That should be one hell of a good time. And, of course, as I'm wont to do, uh, we are actually... Um, I think we were, were we heading, were we heading out all together or were we heading out to eat when I, you know, I look behind the bar? I think it was when we were leaving to eat. Oh, and of course, you know, we peripheral vision out of the corner of my eye, we hadn't even paid our tabs yet. And we, were going, we were going to eat and uh, of course, you know, boom, there, you can't keep books out of my eye line. I saw just this little tiny shelf of books behind the bar and I think I was just like, wow, books or something like that and... Oh, the lady was like, oh, yeah, okay, yeah, sure. We got a few of them here. You ever read this? And um, she actually she uh, brought this out. And she's like, hey, you ever read any uh, David Sedaris or Sedaris? I think it's David Sedaris. And I had only read one, uh, Barrel Fever, and it was unbelievable. Uh, it's just, you know, there's eccentric humor, and there's also some, you know, there's always some sort of mystery and intrigue in there, but... Uh, always humorous, always honest, and uh, totally fantastic. So she was like, hey, you know, you think you'll ever be back? And I was like, well, I don't know we'll be back to Legends, although we may be back to Legends pretty pretty damn soon. But I was just like, yeah, I'm not so sure when I'll be back. And she's like, oh, well, just just take it. You know, I, I know that you'll, you'll return it almost like, oh, my gosh. I got the pained look of every librarian I've ever met where, they just can't refuse me, but they know what they're getting into when they put a book in my hands because I have been and probably always will be the worst overdue artist that ever, ever existed. I'm so bad about giving books back, but that's to be expected. Uh, but well, let's see here. Everybody's out. Oh, yeah. Ooh, books. Yeah, she was there for that. Yeah, so, yeah, we have black books in the house. Emily came down for the show and... Uh, I think everybody that's here tonight was there except for, for Rollo, I think. But um, blast, blast, total blast. So for the sophomore uh, event, I think it was awesome. Miguel from uh, from Videotainment Network was down there kind of pulling the strings on that. And uh, we had a birthday boy there. Ryan was there. And unbelievable. And, you know, no one got too uh, soused to remember. So that was good. But uh, a few people had some liquid courage to get up on stage. I, of course, I I have no uh, no qualms about that. I nothing phases me when it comes to that. So, yeah, there you go. Oh yeah, the book thief. I, you know, believe it or not, I haven't read that book or seen that movie. So I don't know. Maybe it's a form of elitism. I'm not even sure. But when something breaks huge and a movie comes out and there's Oscar buzz, usually I I kind of back away unless you know. I've read it already or what have you, but yeah. So I don't want to wait too long to get into the, 
the meat of the thing because it just so happened, you know, I'm I wasn't I wasn't very uh discreet about it. I I tend I don't know. I tend to be an honest guy. So even in the middle of a show I'll be like I can't remember. I think we actually spoke about it uh in the uh, non-entry number 16, the the last choose your own adventure, the goosebumps uh trapped in Batwing Hall, I think it was called. And I think Andrew was like, "Hey, are we uh are you doing this again on Monday or are you going to wait for Thursday again? And I was like, what? Because, you know, when he's in the midst of all of his uh, prestigious cinematic glory, I always figure they're going to be on set for a few weeks or whatever, but it turned out he was only going to be there last Monday. So he assumed that I was coming back on Monday, and I guess I just thought that I was going to be do- doing Thursdays for a while, but nope, not so much. So I was like, hey, we'll see what I can find, and... And get in there on Monday, if at all possible. Turns out that um, through the, uh, if anyone's looked back through the uh, Die Ball Index videos, you'll see kind of like, it's not exactly an unboxing video, but it's me going through this gigantic stack of books that I got in the mail from some lot I had bought off eBay. And um, it was just, it was a wonderful stack of books that I ended up getting. A bunch of stuff I had never, you know, seen before. A lot of authors I didn't recognize, but the ones that were there were choice, absolutely top of the line. So I figured, well, you never know. I mean, different strokes for different folks and all that kind of stuff. Usually if someone reads good stuff, they read good stuff completely. So I figured it looks like a pretty good stack. So in that stack, I found this, Those Across the River by Charles Buhlman. And uh, this is an awesome... Well, there are a couple of things that are awesome about the book itself. Number one is I wasn't totally unaware that Ace... um, Ace was even doing... putting out books anymore. Because you see these Ace fantasy, Ace horror, science fiction paperbacks from uh, long, long ago. Like some of the classic um, pocket paperbacks came from Ace when it comes to fantasy horror genre science fiction um so these not necessarily tiny but uh back in the day there weren't real super big like uh door stops or anything like that you can put that up from now on if you want um so when i noticed that this was an ace book that really kind of turned me on because i was like no kidding i wasn't totally unaware they were even still making books i thought it was one of those uh companies that kind of maybe got absorbed by something else assimilated in some kind of way and then uh so i got this one off the pile just kind of glanced at it and i thought i would give it a shot and also you know when i was talking about kind of like the because no matter what anyone says you know if you're a full-on bibliophile bibliomaniac you check out the edition it doesn't really matter to me a lot of times what edition i can get um, if I, if I'm just into reading it, if I can get it, then it doesn't, I don't have to have the biggest and the best and, you know, the, the smartest and the brightest, all that kind of stuff. But when I come across one accidentally, it's wonderful. And in this case you have, um, in the picture right there, you can't really make it out on there, but on the top there's, it's kind of like, I don't know what you'd call that bifurcated. I don't think that really makes sense, but with this, you know, it's got kind of like the two sides of the coin. And on the top, it's, you know, it's a little bit more matte finish. And it's got like a rougher 
textural feel. And on the bottom, it's almost got this weird kind of like, um, can't remember what that's called when you, lenticular maybe? Where when you kind of move from side to side, you almost see like a little bit of a rainbow effect, like go across and it's shinier. And uh, the the tree is upside down, so it's kind of like this flip side, which there couldn't be uh, a more apt cover for this book. And you know, with the uh, with kind of like the subtitle for tonight, the the character as misdirection, it's that's kind of that like line you skirt when you have um, a narrator. Usually, it's when the narrator is kind of more of like a personalized narrator. A lot when it when it goes for like kind of like the omnipotent narrator, since they see all a lot of times, a lot of times, not every time they play. You know, authors play with the form and all that kind of stuff. But usually, it's if they see all, they tell all, or at least they will tell all eventually. And in this, um, it's so difficult. It's so mind blowing when you find out that this is Buhlman's first book. Um, he's a poet and he, uh, I guess he's worked in Renaissance festivals just, oh, I think for like over a decade. So he did a lot of, you know, acting, uh, in person, up close and personal with people and he'd stay in character and all, all that kind of stuff. And when you think of a Renaissance festival employee, you, you kind of think of like the fanciful and kind of like, uh, hams overacting and all that kind of stuff. But one thing that struck me about this book is, and I hate this, this is going to come off bad, but I can't think of any other way of saying it. It's such a mature approach. Um, in this book, there there are no hallmarks of, uh, of, a, of a novice, of an amateur. Um, it's so uh, balanced and it's so tempered. Uh, almost to the point where when I was actually speaking with someone about, you know, what I was doing next and, and how, you know, how it looked out in the public eye and stuff. And this is one of those rare occasions. Usually you see a book that's out and kind of strikes your fancy or whatever. And usually it's, you know, everybody likes it. Everybody hates it. Or you have maybe like 50, 50 split or something like that. In this case, I was even more pumped because, um, I think it was like a third of the way through it, and it just it boggled my mind how absolutely flat out well written it is. So I was just like looking around to see what other people had to say about it, and it turned out that there was all I mean not quite it was a little bit skewed toward the better better end of things, but it had every star you could get. Usually you'll see kind of like a bunch of fives, a bunch of fours, a few threes, a couple of twos, all that kind of stuff. It was to oh, I mean, it wasn't completely balanced, but there were entries in every blank. So I was like, "Whoa, this is kind of a divisive book." And so I was like, "Well, that could be bad. That could be good. You never know." Especially, you know, I didn't even know that it. Like I said, I didn't know that it was his first book until uh, a little bit later. So it blew my mind. But when it comes to the the character as misdirection, in this book, flat out. There are a lot of uh, there are a lot of quotes and a lot of blurbs from writers that are basically saying, you know, this is more like F. Scott Fitzgerald trying on kind of like uh, the hat of horror or something. In fact, I think it might be a yeah. As much F. Scott Fitzgerald as Dean Coons. I mean, I I wouldn't have said Dean Coons. I think I would have gone more for a Paul Tremblay because 
um, Coons has a definite uh, framework, a definite um, checklist that he has to fulfill in his books. So, Yvonne, rock on, Yvonne's here. That's cool. Thanks for coming out. And everyone, of course, but I'm not, she doesn't come out that often, so that's pretty cool. I've got an author, an actual author in the house, so uh, she might have something to say about this. But um, in this book, the reason why it's it's misdirects so much is that, in my opinion, you can have likable characters, but usually the the likable characters pale in comparison to this, you know, this plot that they're yoked to, or you know, the definite implications of everything that's happening around them at all time. So you can get into kind of like the meat of the story and the thrust of the momentum. Um, in this case, the characters. To say center stage would actually have them kind of standing too prominently. I think it's one of those things where you pay attention so much to the characters. It's not so much that they're beating you over the head or uh, they're jumping you know, into frame. You just pay attention because you totally, totally, um, you fall in love with these people. Because they're not, they're not simple. They're flawed. They're charming. They're intelligent. And they're wounded. So you have, you know, this this mix of stuff that, you know, you could easily see in a Steinbeck. Or you could easily see in, uh, I almost said Twain, but not necessarily. Uh, but you might see it in like a Hemingway type of setting. And that's kind of where we're speaking to here, though, too. Because this takes place and it kind of, it that's another misdirection. It kind of takes you back a little bit when you find out when this is taking place because in a lot of ways, despite this new environment, they're they're fish out of water, but they're very capable. So it doesn't really, that's not as much of a handicap as you would think. So um, there's not a whole lot of instances where you see them uh, out of their depth until the depth starts to become kind of like not so good. But you know it's it's one of those things where this is uh this is one that I am probably going to be forced to be really vague when it comes to what goes on after a certain point because going into a cold is paramount. You have to go into this completely cold in order to get the absolute bite of it because you you're reading along and it's not to say that it's you know unexciting or anything, but you know you know something is happening. And it's funny that like this this book like blew my mind like in every way. But in this real super quiet um balanced way. Not necessarily ordered way, but completely balanced where uh it's not as if like well we've we've dwelt too long uh with these people in their home in, in these little quiet moments and stuff. So, you know, the roof's got to cave in. There're actually a lot of uh, parts in this book where it, I was kind of taken aback because there was this little moment and I thought, okay, well, what does that have to do? What's, what's going to happen next? And then something would happen next and it wouldn't necessarily have to do with that, but it would be totally organic because that's exactly what it would be like in real life. I love these conversations in the comments. Um, because I mean, we have, I've got nothing but book lovers here tonight. So I guess you just like kind of start at the beginning, which, and I actually told uh, one of the listeners, Emily from Black Books last 
Uh, I can't remember if it was last night or today, but I related that uh, the beginning of this book is unreal provocative, which when once you start going into the book, you get lulled into this false sense of security, but it's not played up. It's not overbearing. It's not so plotted out that you see it coming a mile away and then you just, you know, you're, you're saying, okay, well... If we go through here, then, you know, the, the dominoes are starting to fall. It's a really super organic thing, and it's really unusual. It's a unique, it's a really unique book because you'll think that something's about to happen, something does happen, but it's in this really super easy to, it's, it's easy to believe. All the stuff that happens in this book is easy to believe. Nothing goes so far. It's um, it's totally shocking in some parts because the stuff that happens, it doesn't necessarily come out of nowhere. You have this dread and then something will occur, but it's so believable and understandable and imaginable that it just knocks you off your gate a little bit. You're like, oh, this could absolutely happen exactly the way it did. And thinking of, you know, someone who reads a lot of horror and stuff, when you, when it occurs to you what this would be like to experience what happens in, in some of these moments, it really, like, it, one of the, one of the things I see coming up, like, keep coming up in the authors, uh, different authors that are, have read the book, and F. Paul Wilson was one, gave it a, a glowing review, and I don't often see him talking about books, so that was totally great you know father and paramount jack right there so i was like huh when authors give things props i guess it kind of smooths the way especially when you haven't heard of an author but for me it could totally go i've i've had you disagree not everyone is going to be so much an authority that is just going to go across the board and everyone's gonna you know gonna agree with what they say but in this case there was, they said, you know, like, don't, whatever you do, read this book as soon as you can, but whatever you do, be careful about reading it at night. And to me, that's, you know, that's always good copy and it always gets you reeled in and, uh, and all that kind of jazz. But, uh, in this case, of course, I mean, I scoffed at it. I was like, I'm reading this at night. That's what, you know, that's where it's going to get good. That's where it's going to be good. So Yeah. He couldn't have been, or whoever said that, or however many said it, they couldn't have been more right. Reading this at night, just due to the fact that, you know, you're you're going through it and you're with these people. They could be next to you today. You could have seen them on the street. And then something happens that absolutely could have happened in your life at some point in time. Even though you're in a, you know, you might be in a foreign place that, that you haven't been all your life and all that type of stuff. The newcomer. For it to have happened to anyone would have... I keep talking about, I'm sorry. I don't want to, you know, I don't want to belabor this too much because I think I'm going to have to, to, uh, just to talk about it a little, just because it's, it was unreal how much punch this little moment had for me. So, okay. The very beginning, I hesitate to call it a prologue because it's just, um, Number one, it doesn't... I'm looking right at it, Andrew. Um, um, I didn't change it. <laughs> I was like, he's not looking at the right camera. Sorry. I think that that fall gave Andrew a little bit of water on the brain. 
We'll see. <laughs> but um, I hit transition, but it went back to the old one. Ah, well, what are you going to do? Um, so, the very beginning. The very, very beginning. The absolute beginning. Uh, okay, I can't help it. I have to read the first line. I can't help it. So I open this book and I'm kind of thinking, well, this should be, this should be a, a nice yarn to go through. And this is like after the acknowledgments, he's a nice guy. Okay, so first line of the book is, he came out to see me in the cage because I belonged to him. All right. Now, what do you take from that? About 10 billion things you can take from that. And you go through this little, I think it may have, it couldn't have been more than three pages long. And it doesn't give you much to go with. But what it does give you is completely horrifying. So then, when you get into the actual chapter one, it starts with, uh, where is it? I don't even know why I had to read it. Because he says something like, um... Oh, this is how it started. So, you know that, you know, you're getting you're getting it straight from the horse's mouth. The lead character, Orville Francis Nichols, um, goes by Frank. I mean, who wouldn't? And it's really strange because he has a... Orville kind of has a ring of the country to it for me. So when he kind of descends into this place where he goes um, to see him kind of referred to as the, the highfalutin one is kind of, it's kind of funny, especially, especially since it goes by Frank and, and all that stuff, but <laughs> brace for provocativeness, she says. Um, so you have a, a disgraced professor of history. Uh, Frank Nichols and his wife, Eudora, she goes by Dora, uh, who was the wife of the professor of English at uh, U of M. They both attended U of M. So, you know, he sees her at some sort of luncheon and instantly falls head over heels in love, which you see throughout the book. That never wavers. You think that it would, uh, that kind of a good, cheap, easy uh, way of causing conflict in the book or uh, a rift, you know, between the, the everyday and some sort of, you know, un, unknown country would be to, you know, drive a wedge in between those two. In this case, as far as I can, as far as I'm willing to tell you, it doesn't occur. And what's, you know, what's, there are very, very many things that surprise me about this story. And one of the major ones was kind of the way they spoke to each other was really, it wasn't kind of like a dated, they didn't, since, you know, this is supposed to be the late thirties, you would think that they would go for some sort of dated, uh, framing of speech or the way people talk to each other in private or public, how that would differ and all that kind of stuff. And it absolutely doesn't. The, the dialogue is fantastic, which is kind of like. That's totally a mark of a good, of any good story is, is the dialogue being good. Um, I think that it's, you know, 
is definitely way up there with the like, you know descriptive uh, powers and stuff like that. Chapter two: Your father smelt of elderberries. You always know when. Oh my God! When the Merrells are here, it it always you know goes off like a shot. So, um, I loved it. Hearing them uh, talk to each other at home, in the car, and travel during a move, it like totally made sense. This byplay they had to, together, and they've been together for at least a couple of years by this point. And she, you know, she had to leave under a cloud. He was disgraced, and um, they receive a letter, and they're living, you know, in someone's spare room at the time poverty stricken and this is during the depression as well which kind of looms large in this but being that it's a small town you can see you know you can definitely feel the grade of poverty when you know they had little to begin with and then once the depression hit then got much worse especially since there's a there's another town kind of um bordering their town at a distance and and they're the ones that have you know i mean at this point in time no one has plenty but they're at least you know, doing a little bit better than, uh, Whitbro. It might be Whitbrow, but I say Whitbro. Just, sound, I, that seems to be the way it, it's supposed to be, um, pronounced. So they receive a letter from his aunt Dottie. And I, I thought this was, it was interesting that her name was Dottie because, you know, she, when she writes the letter, there's actually a, a note attached to it that says, you know, this is, you know, this is her lawyer. Just be aware that she was, under uh, opiates at the time because she ended up having cancer of the stomach. I believe it was the stomach and she's writing to him and it's, um, there are so many little touches to the story that makes you think of much older stories, but somehow it doesn't feel, it doesn't have that kind of like hackneyed, you know, antiqueness to it, to it. That seems kind of clunky in in the modern day. It was awesome. There was so so many little mysteries and secrets and um, just eccentricities, especially when it comes to like the characters and, and the way they interact with each other and stuff. But you have this mysterious letter. So the letter, you know, just in short, basically says, you know, there there has been you know this inheritance of of this house down through our family. And it, you know, it, it passes to you naturally. It passes to you. Don't move here. Don't live in the house basically is what she's saying. And that immediately I was just like, Oh man, it just, it just brought me, it just totally pulled me in, especially since, you know, you're already kind of living with this, these people to have this kind of like mystery get tossed in their lap and not to have them overreact to it. There's so many reactions and, um, and emotional, uh, flights that they take that they just seem so damn real that they, you know, when you're reading this letter, you're kind of reading it over their shoulder because you see like the italics and stuff. And it's from his point of view, uh, apparently from a future time. Because he's telling the story, you know, in this way where he says stuff like, but that wasn't the end of it. Or this is before the bad stuff uh, occurred. 
and all that and all those things. So the letter is saying, you know, you have this house, but don't come sell the house, never come here. And she, uh, she records as bad blood. There's bad blood here. You know, no one's, uh, no one stayed well. that's ever been here after what happened. And that's kind of like the, that's kind of like the crux of the thing that of course keeps getting shoved to the side. Frank wants to write a book and he wants to write a book about his past, which is to say like the lineage of his family. And it just so happens that, um, there is a pretty hoary, hairy lineage going on here where he is descended from these Savoyans and Lucien Savoyan. And this guy was, uh, he was during the civil war. He was a slave owner, a massive slave owner. And he was against the emancipation. So when everything went down and the tide shifted, he actually fought emancipation and due to his, uh, railing against it, the slaves actually, um, stood up and there was a massacre on the plantation and they took it back for themselves. So he was known for his cruelty and, and his, uh, his allegiance to an obscure, you know, uh, um, not obscure and, um, an obsolete philosophy and it cost him his life. And it was only fitting because he had uh, tortured and killed a lot of people under his yoke. So he has this in his past and being historian, he wants to kind of like air out his own dirty laundry and, and maybe make a name for himself in doing it and maybe exercise some demons along the way, especially since he's going back to where this all happened. He ignores his aunt's warning and goes to Canary house in Whitbro, which is right across the river from uh, the Savoyan plantation, which was in the woods. So now we enter Whitbro. And it's an amazingly rich cast of characters, but not so, um, they're not caricatures. They don't have this grand, you know, if there's such a thing as kind of like grand cornpone, uh, affect to them, you can't really, you can't do that and still keep it as grounded as it is. I mean, especially when it's, it's strange to even say grounded, uh, when you think about what occurs, but that's exactly what it is. Um, they come into town and they, you know, they have movers and make no mistake. There is a huge racial element to this book because you have the time period, you have the history of the plantation, you have the history of what went on there. So this town hasn't let go of a lot of things that that are, um, they're out of our reach now. And, you know, rightly so. And maybe in some parts, you know, not as much as we would like the, a lot of the things that we thought were dead and gone or, you know, they're all over the news now. So in this case, there are a lot of different emotional ranges to this book where 
it's just so, so damn believable. Take a drink, everybody. I think that's one of their drinking games tonight. Believable and something else. I can't remember. But um, it's a shame, but we definitely still recognize it, especially in uh, in the tenor of what's going on right now. So at its heart, this is a town that's bitten by the Great Depression. But I can't help but have this strange uh, wicker man the village type of flavor to this because despite them, you know, having their gospel and they have their general store and, um, all that, you know, all, all these kind of these twinges of maybe even like the Stephen King, like small town boy type of stuff or, or in some cases like the Ray Bradbury thing. Um, and maybe even some Lovecraftian, stuff. Uh, I, I hesitate to say that because I can, I think that gives the wrong impression, but, um, there is a little bit of dialectics happening in the speech, but not so much that, uh, it's insulting to anyone, but it's definitely there. So you have basically, you know, a professor and a teacher because she, uh, she became a teacher, uh, in this town. So they're basically a couple of academics coming into a town where they are to find out has a chasing of the pigs, and to even say it, it kind of sounds like, you know, the, the celebrated jumping frog of Calaveras County, but that's not, <laughs> bless you. That's not what it is at all. Um, it is much more in the vein of something that would happen, uh, at the summer Isle, where they have, you know, the great chase of the pigs and it's an offering. And there's a, there's a pastor in town who basically says, you know, they're, they're, the food are, are given to us, and the, we have dominion over the animals, and they're given to us. So if we give them back, that is not, you know, that is a tribute. So the little girls make these uh, rings of flowers, and they put them around the pigs' heads. And every farmer has his turn to give up uh, two pigs. I believe it's two pigs, or one pig from two farmers. I can't remember off the top of my head. Um, so they kind of have this, it's almost like a turkey pardon, uh, in the middle of the town square and the pastor comes out and says, you know, the animals come from the field and we, we raise these animals as our own and we give back to that, you know, who gave them to us, we give them back to them. So they chase the pig, pigs out to this ceremony and then they chase the pigs to the woods and the pigs disappear into the woods. And it's a big to do. It's one of the biggest things to happen. And they have a social where, uh, strangely enough, Dora and Frank are invited and they're, that's not as much, uh, there's nowhere near the amount of kind of like conflict that you would think would happen when two academics came to this town really refreshing, totally refreshing. You would think that, you know, from word one, they would be ostracized or shunned or people wouldn't speak to them or close their doors to them. And, and there is a moment where at the very beginning, they'll take a walk and they'd see, you know, a candle lit in someone's home in their window and they'd know someone was there, but they wouldn't wave hello and 
all that stuff. But it dries up pretty quick because these two are very super genuine people. They don't put on airs, and they have um, they have a lot of rambunctiousness to them. And I and I think that when the cares the characters meet them, it comes across. So Dora cares about her uh, the children in her class. It's a one room schoolhouse, so she she uh, teaches the children. And so because of that, she kind of becomes like an instant pillar, an instant, uh, authority, at least, you know, to some of the parents who, who care, but no one can stop asking Frank about when he's going to, you know, write this book because they all know of his, uh, ancestors and they, you know, they ask him if he's Dottie's kin and all this kind of stuff. Aunt Dottie who sent the letter, but there was no inkling to the town that she had actually forbidden him to to stay in the house and so it's the depression so there's a bit of a uh, debate about whether or not they should still release the pigs they do it monthly and this you know the selling of a pig would mean a lot to some of the farmers especially the ones that aren't doing so well a lot of the farmers kids are barefoot most of the time and they won't go to school because they're too busy, you know, trying to get a greater yield to sell a market and all that type of things. And, uh, there is one character in particular, and I think it's kind of noteworthy that his name is Martin. And the first thing I thought of when it kind of gets into things, Martin is the only other kind of intellectual, I guess you'd, he's the intellectual in the range of more of an eccentric and his shack is actually at the borderline of the woods. I think it's on the other side of the river, but I can't be sure about that. They're a little unclear about whether or not he's at the, you know, he's at the boundary of the woods, but I can't remember if he's on the, the woods side of the river. Right. I think he might be, I think he might be, which kind of like lends itself to, almost like this hermit of the woods type thing, except he's not, uh, he takes a liking to Frank that doesn't, you know, it gets a little bit strained at a certain point, but, um, he, he's just awesome. He stinks of, uh, cheap cigars all the time. And he has a still, he, he makes moonshine that even they kind of, uh, put a rumor out there that even the pastor might, get some of that and the chief knows chief of police knows everything and everyone knows everything. You can't hide anything in a small town. So at one point, um, one of the men of town where there are very, very few women in view, uh, because being that this is like the late thirties and this is kind of set in a place that may not have even progressed that for that far in the timeline. So the women are basically at home. The only females you see in the story a whole lot are the children and uh, Dora. And it changes a little bit. There's kind of a little bit of a, a spurring to action with Dora being in the picture because uh, she isn't anywhere close to a, a mousy subject. She She goes for the throat always. And she, you know, she knows that she's a... Uh, a hothouse flower, but her eyes are only for Frank. But that doesn't mean that the the rest of the town doesn't go gaga over her. 
And she's got a brain in her head and makes it known. So she's a powerful entity in this town. But she also uh, wears her heart on her sleeve as well. So the children take an instant liking to her. And that's why it becomes such a a battle between them with what happens later on in the book. But I don't want to get too far ahead of myself. Basically, they have this giant social after the, the race of the pigs. And that's where everyone kind of gets to, to meet this couple. And when they meet Martin, he gives uh, Frank a standing, uh, standing invitation to play chess. Because they'll play, he's, you know, he says everyone will play checkers with you and they'll smoke you. But they don't know, you know, a knight from Shinola. So he's led out to the river. You know, to because he wants to find out where this plantation is. That's that kind of is the, or at least it's supposed to be the center of what he's doing there. He would have stayed away, but he he has to kind of. If he had never met Dora, he may have stayed away. But now that they've kind of thrown over their whole worlds to to be together, he has to make something of it other than just this uh, fantastic love. And lust, as it turns out, this is actually a very sexy book. Um, I was um, I was blown away by how how candid some of the stuff was, and you think, well, you know, it's life, but then you think, but it's thirties, so you kind of have to think of it as that. You know, there there are a lot of things that we see in movies and uh, older books that probably weren't. They probably weren't true, or at least uh, were a watered-down version of the case. Because, I mean, everybody does it. You have to. Um, That's the way the world is made. So, uh, but yeah, but it never gets tawdry. And um, it's all just so damn unique. So... I could honestly talk about I'm it's it is so hopefully I, I don't have this like incredible look of pain on my face the whole time. It is so difficult not to just tell all about this thing. It is such a rocking good yarn. Um but you know there there are things that happen. And as soon as, you know, he's taken to the river the guy he's with, I think it's Lester, says, you know, there you are. And he says, you know, can't you, would you mind showing me around to the civilian plantation? And he says, no one goes past the river. No one crosses to the woods. And it just kind of gets left at that. There, There isn't a whole lot of drama. There isn't a whole lot of um, kind of like Crypt Keeper type of, warnings, omens, portents about what could happen if he goes over there. They just basically say, say no one goes there except the pigs and they never come back. So, of course, being the guy that he is, he's uh, he was wounded in World War One or the Great War. He was wounded in that uh, saving a friend and it's difficult for him to even cross through lines of trees because of it. He ends up getting the shakes and, and uh, almost has kind of like the thirties equivalent of a panic attack whenever he's in that, uh, in that environment due to his time in France. So 
for him to even be so driven as to go into the woods, despite all of the the warnings and with his trauma, it kind of says a lot to it. You know, it kind of speaks a lot to his character. But he sees something in the woods that it. There's no doubt about it. It chilled me to the bone when he went into the woods. Um, and throughout the, throughout the course of the book, um, bringing Dora into his life has, has helped, uh, calm his, his horrors from the war. And he mostly looks back on it, uh, to the kind of like the fonder times of his time spent in Britain after in his convalescence and stuff, because basically his best friend was shelled in a, uh, in a trench during the war. And he he went to basically stop these guys from burying him on the spot, saying, you know, he meant to bring him back to his mother and stuff. And uh, a shell drops in and, and just blows his back to pieces and he loses his hearing and the uh, and his friend is just vaporized. So he's carrying a lot of stuff around with him. They've got the weight of uh, of leaving their um, their names basically behind in academic circles and his job is ruined. Her marriage has been destroyed by their, um, just un, you know, you just, you just can't resist it. They couldn't resist being with each other. It was so meant to be in their eyes that nothing or no one was going to stop them. And they destroyed every, every bridge they had to, to make it happen. So they have that. He has the war and the horrors of, of what he's seen and what's happened to him and, and kind of like the aftermath. And he enters the woods just to find the plantation. And as he's walking through, he kind of starts to lose the trail. And then he sees these two trees like silent sentinels on either side of the, either side of the trail. And right at waist level, it looks like they've been gored across. It's like slashed across. Um, and he knows that this is like the entrance to something. And with the, with kind of, I guess you could say, with the earthly horrors of what happened there, being in the woods by yourself, surrounded by the trauma of your past, and then finding this, this kind of like this gate to the other side, it definitely puts him in a in a state, but he he trudges on, and um, it's unreal. I'm not going to tell you. I'm not going to tell you. I can't. I can't. I can't stand it. I can't stand it. I want it, and it's gonna it's gonna hype it up more than it needs to be, because it really is. It's it's not that fantastical what happens, but you kind of have to see it for yourself in your mind's eye. And you kind of have to experience it as if it was something that just were to happen to you in this wilderness uh, in order for you to to kind of understand why it would throw someone off kilter. So, um, there are repercussions to the debate about the chase of the pigs. Uh, when he returns... To the town, I will let you know that much. 
when he returns to the town, there are uh, there are talks of uh, stopping their ritual. There, I mean, there's no doubt about it. You have to consider it a ritual. It's not some sort of strange um, lower class ceremony. Uh, it's most definitely a ritual because, I mean, they're serving some sort of god, whether or not they believe in the pastor or not. And they're, you know, the chief of police says things under his breath. Which sound like prayers, but he feels like he's sinning even saying them because it's ba- he's basically saying, you know, God help me for choosing to be what I am in this town. Because the debate comes to an end, and actually Dora takes uh, takes a hand in the in the debate as to whether or not to to set them free anymore. Because she's seen what the children look like. She's seen the, um, she she's seen kind of like the hardships they've had to go through, and what people are missing due to that. There are some children that aren't even being allowed at the school anymore due to the hardships. So, um, the pigs stay in their pens, and. Almost immediately, the town is thrown into upheaval. And it's such a classic notion. It's so classic even to be kind of before the advent of American fiction, where you have these uh, these things that kind of foretell doom. and um, But they're done. In you know, in the service of some sort of need or um, greed or faith or whatever, there there all there are all kinds of things that might uh, start a chain of events that would cause something like this to happen. But um, once the pigs stay home, then there's a wanting. Something is in need. Something that was satiated before has now uh, grown feral in this starvation and um, it comes, you know, in the form of many forms, a rending, there's a rending there. There are deaths that seem like they could be uh, disconnected from what's happening, but it, it just adds to kind of like this, this fog of doubt as to whether or not these things could actually be true. And um, and Doran Franker in the middle of it. By this time, when it comes to her being a teacher and um, him spending his time in the general store and kind of making making do, becoming one of the men of the town, uh, it's wonderful to see because you would think that the conflict would have started with them, but actually they uh, they become beloved in the town. Because uh, the new are taking the places of the old when they're struck down and when they're cleaved from the town due to uh, due to this abstinence. And there are new people. It kind of gives you that uh, that feeling of intruders. You would you would have thought that the intrusion would have been done by you know the the uh, disgraced academics coming to town. 
but it kind of shifts over once they once they get standing in the town. It shifts over to mysterious vagrants that make their way into town, and it's it's um, it really gives you the, the flavor of older works, more classic works. And I think that that's where the misdirection comes in yet again. You see these things and it gives you this feeling that this is this classic story. It gives you such an, uh, uh, such a feeling that this, this story has been told by a great storyteller from long ago. When you come into to places like this and see these people and, um, very, very, it gives you kind of like a Tom Sawyer aspect, but not quite that, that old. Nobody, nobody's chewing hay and all that kind of stuff, but it's, um, it really doesn't, really doesn't make sense that this guy was this good, uh, on his first time out. And it just so happened that I accidentally, I've, I think I've got a couple more of his books, uh, somewhere in my piles, in my boxes somewhere. I know he wrote one called The Necromancer's Wife and um, The Suicide Motor Club, which is a total, that's a total provocative name. So it, it seems to me like he's got a, a really wide range. And when you write characters this well and uh, situations this well, dread and, um, and omens, but the kind of like the the realism of home behind closed doors with with you know not so young lovers these people are adults this isn't like some sort of casual high school fling and yet to make it uh as as sumptuous as it is i think that it really um it really takes everything seriously and it takes the idea of love seriously and also the idea of betrayal seriously uh when you betray your gods, you might feel it uh, across your chest and your back or your neck even. Um, it's taken so much. It's taken so much. Um, you know, it, it gives you, when it comes to the, like I was saying with the narration, when he says stuff like, but that wasn't the worst of it, or... And, you know, if he says, and, you know, this is to say that it hadn't even begun yet, or they hadn't seen the worst of it, or we were to be judged further, or things like that. Uh, it doesn't give you that feeling like he's about, you know, the, it makes you think of him. I mean, you say he is not, he's not even the character anymore. You know, these people, um, you don't think that it's just going to cut off there and then it's going to be like commercial break or like chapter break. And then it'll, you know, totally go to some other place in town, some other conversation with the townsfolk and all that kind of stuff. It's great because it, it sets you up and then you see it. And then you realize that it's been in your eyeline like the whole time. And uh, that does not, uh, that does not squash the power of it. Um, but like Boris Balkan in, in the club Dumas, it was much more of a pulpy ham fisted way of going about it. And that's not saying that I don't like, that's one of my favorite books ever, but this, this has, um, 
a much higher bar, definitely. Um, and, you know, you, you look over the reviews and you'd be like, wow, man, Corey's really talking this book up. This must be great. But it only got a 3.8 on Goodreads or whatever. And it, it's because of this spectrum. There are some people who love the slow burn. There are some people who, you know, want this grisly horror like right in your face. The thing about this book is, is that it's not what it's not telling you. That's that's kind of the most, that's the craziest thing of all. It's not what it's not telling you. It's telling you everything. But it's just taking its time doing it. It doesn't keep things from you that the care, you know, if a character is seeing something, you see it. Not necessarily instantly, but you'll see it. So it's it's not as it's not this suspense due to blindness or ignorance and all that kind of stuff. It's suspense because you're thinking to yourself you're empathizing with it. You're sympathizing with their reaction. You're empathizing with the you know with what what's happening from these people. It doesn't come as a surprise and yet you're still shocked. Like you see it happening and you cannot stop it. And it occurs to you that this could totally happen anytime. Um, and just the, he's a poet. The guy's a poet in life. And you would think that that would give this, this like weird flower, flowery, um, uppity, self-serving thing. It doesn't do that at all. At some point, it's so damn lyrical, but you don't you don't really even notice it until it's already over. You just think, "Wow, that was like a beautiful paragraph," and all he's doing is talking about like the dent in his car. Like it's it's such a subtle, crafty way of of getting it done. And I can totally see. There's no doubt about it. I can totally see someone going after this thinking to themselves um yeah man this is on every this is on i mean i don't know if it is or not i i don't i haven't looked around that far to see whether or not it's on a bunch of horror lists but um and i think i've talked about this before too it's great now i think that some of the best horror sci-fi and fantasy that's coming out right now it doesn't necessarily have it plastered all over it like this just says a novel i love that i love it that you can go into a fiction area and find just the scariest shit you could possibly find in there. And that's why I was kind of, I hesitate to say, well, this book, I do it often. I'm sure I do, but I don't like doing it. But I was kind of trying to think of something that'd be like, well, this is like such and such mixed with whatever. And one thing that came to mind for me was Lord of the Flies, where uh, you see, kind of like the savagery of people come out. And when, uh, when everything starts to kind of like fall down around their heads, that's when Martin, who's the closest to the river, Martin is the closest of the, uh, the whip, the whip bro people to be near the river. No one else will dare be so close. And, uh, he's the closest, and therefore, he kind of, 
he has this knowing about things. When uh, that last time, when Frank comes out of the woods on his little uh, perilous journey that I've, I've skirted around as about as much as I possibly can, uh, he is totally shaken to his core. He can barely walk without stumbling due to what has happened. And he goes to Martin's shack. And uh, him and Martin, you know, they they were fast friends. Fast friends. But when he shows up at the shack unexpectedly and says, you know, as not to say something incredibly freaky and creepy as hell just happened with no explanation... Can I please come in? No. He just basically says, you know, I'm taking you up on that invitation to chess. And Martin tells him to get the hell out of his office property, basically. And he can't believe his his ears because everything, you know, he was tight with this guy at the social and stuff. And and uh, he will not let him in. And he's a taxidermist. Um, I don't know if I mentioned that. He's a taxidermist. So he... Uh, he basically tells him, he says, you know, get out of here. I'm, I don't care what happened to you. This is blah, blah, blah. He's really been out of shape, which gives you the impression of knowledge. You know, he, he can just either, either he knows that kind of like something's in the wind or, um, he's, he witnessed what happened because at one point he says, you know, that last time when you were there fishing, when you took photos with your camera, I'm probably in them. Somewhere, because I was, you know, I was going over my still and whatnot. So you probably didn't see me, but I saw you. Which gives you like an ominous feeling to this guy. But he's so honest about everything. He's like a curmudgeon, sort of. But he's uh, much more, he's got a lot more class. Sometimes. It seems like it's kind of, it's almost as if he's like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Because... He'll say something with, that has like an extreme amount of intelligence, and then all of a sudden you'll see him running around like in a skin or whatever. But um, he says, "If you don't get out of here," and he takes his camera and he hands uh, he hands Frank a bicycle, and he says, "I'm taking your camera. You're taking my bicycle. And if you don't get out of here, I'm going to send you back to your wife with a glass asshole." <laughs> that was really funny because um, I guess that must have been part of the the taxidermy process. I don't know if they put a bottle inside of the the torso or what to keep the shape. I'm not even sure. So he's kind of taken aback because he's like, what the, it's like this crazy ass thing just happened in the woods and I am totally freaking out. And this guy is sending me away. You get to kind of, you get the inkling later on that sometimes you can get someone to do what they're supposed to do a lot easier with anger than you can with understanding. So he may have saved his life doing it that way. Um, but then everything goes crazy. As soon as Martin hears that the... Because uh, he, he stands up in the middle of... of I mean, I'm, I'm tempted to say court, but it's kind of like the city council meeting or whatever. And doesn't it sound just so normal? All of it sounds so normal when I say it, but you'll know what I mean when you um, when you take it on. He stands up and he says, you know... I can't say, you know, I can't really give you the reasons why it's important for you to uh, keep sending the pigs out into the woods. But if you don't, then I can't be 
blamed for what happened. I had to say my my piece. And if I had my way, all of you would disappear off the face of the earth. I I don't like any of you and all this stuff. So, you know, I mean, it just gives you, it just smacks of honesty when someone says, I hate your guts, but something bad is going to happen to you if you do this. So the vote comes down. The chase of the pigs is off. (laughs) And he actually drives around town howling. He's so drunk that he howls because of he, I guess it's almost like the, it kind of gives me the, um, the impression of kind of like the the Judean like tearing of the the shirts, like in in this um, almost like this religious terror, this religious um, sadness and woe, and I think that's kind of what was going on. Like it, it kind of comes off at first like he's just some drunken lunatic, but when you when what happens later happens, you kind of get the idea that he was actually kind of like. Um, mourning these people before it actually occurred. Because since he's so close to the woods, he may know more than a little about what's happening. And so, I think I'm going to leave it there. Um, It just doesn't seem like I said much at all about this. But (laughs) it's... they, They basically find that their town is being stripped... Of its dearest loves. And it's... uh, Any sanctity that had ever been is lost. Completely shredded to time. Because of... um, Their sacrilege. Basically, I guess you could say. But nothing can ever prepare you. And nothing will ever describe what, what is to happen. And what uh, Frank and Dora are exposed to. Um, Just being affiliated with this town and the history of his family. uh, Which makes it um, all the more... You know, people were talking about Peter Straub and Stephen King's It and all that stuff. And I think that that is a... uh, I think it's a poor estimation of what's going on in this story. I think it's much older than that. I think, I believe if I remember correctly, I think that Buellman won the um, the Shirley Jackson Award. So if anyone's read the lottery, like that, there's a lot of the lottery in this in this uh, book. And um, Frank is a stand-up guy since he he doesn't have a wit of cowardice despite everything that's happened in the war. Uh, he He comes to be one of these people. So... You know, when things happen and a band is put together to to go into the woods, he doesn't hesitate. And, you know, there are things that are unearthed and set, you know, set before them and unbelievably rich. This this book is so rich. Okay, so, yeah, I think I'm going to leave it there. Um, I would like to talk to uh, talk to you off air about it. Uh, if anyone picks up the book, uh, you put the address up. Um, I'm going to give you the the diabolical index. It's a, a new email address that I put together, so we can kind of talk about these books um, and get all spoilerific with it if you want to. And it's a little bit more of a private thing. Sometimes when it comes to like the 
the messenger and those services, you can't, you can't quite get as much meat into it as you'd like. And you might not be able to get to it, uh, throughout the day and stuff. So just look up here, email addresses there. Uh, maybe, uh, when it's reposted, I'll put the, put the link in there proper, but, um, anyone who wants to talk about it after you've, uh, given it a shot, those across the river by, uh, Christopher Buhlman, let me know. Um, and maybe it'll show up, uh, in the, uh, questionable appendix. I'm still working on that. I've got a lot of transferring to do, uh, from one place to another to make, uh, make a few storehouses of the material that we're putting out. Um, I apologize for how vague everything had to be, uh, only because, um, I'm really curious to see, uh, what happens when everyone takes this on, uh, themselves. So across, uh, those across the river by Christopher Buhlman, uh, check it out as you're at your nearest opportunity and don't be surprised if, uh, if the unexpected happens, uh, and, Basically, I mean, I would say you never truly have a, a, a sense of total security in the book because you experience the, the trauma of war. You experience the insult of, um, of the infirm. I mean, they go to see a friend of, uh, of his aunts and just, it's that, that whole idea of once you've reached a certain point in age, you don't give a shit about what you're saying to people. Uh, and especially since he's talking to, he's talking to people who existed during the civil war. So when he's trying to kind of, you know, whittle this information out of him about his, his great grandfather, or it might be even great, great, but I think it's great grandfather. Um, they don't hesitate for a moment to kind of, uh, get into the old ways And tear them apart. But, um, the characters are rich. The, um, the subject matter is so insanely cunning. Um, it almost, it, it kind of gives me this idea that I'm not, I'm kind of afraid to read his other stuff because if it's, if it's, I mean, this is, I mean, okay, I don't, I don't want to, I want to put out the idea that this is a perfect book. It's not perfect. But if this is as good as it gets at, at the very beginning, I can, I can't even imagine what his further books are going to be like. And especially, I mean, it seems like the, the pace, I don't foresee a book called the Suicide Motor Club being anything less than fast paced. So I'm really interested to see what happens next with him. And this is, uh, I think I started reading this as soon as we spoke about it, I started thinking about what was going to happen, you know, Thursday. And then we had the show on Friday. I didn't have a ton of time to, uh, to find something else to, to go through. So I think that I may have picked it on Friday. I started reading it on Saturday and I'm not, uh, I'm the slowest reader ever, but I'm not the fastest either because especially for this, I definitely want to, um, I want to go through it with some sort of a comb. It might not be as fine tooth as some, but, 
Um, with this one, I was really savoring it a lot. So, uh, I think that Mel and Lucy lost some time with me over this one because, um, I was just engrossed in it. I had the celestial white noise, like headphones on. So like nothing was getting in the way. And, um, and I read mostly at night I was getting my, my true, uh, minutes and hours in and, uh, it does not disappoint. I totally recommend those across the river. And, uh, I would really love for you all to, to go to the email after you've read it. Um, and let me know what you think about all the stuff that I didn't talk about. Um, you know, it's difficult. I, I even have, you know, I have a bunch of stuff written in the notes right here that you'd be hard pressed to, to read it even at that distance. Let's see. Yeah, maybe. So, but it doesn't matter because even my notes are vague. Um, I don't know. I don't like to put like this happened and this exactly happened and this exactly happened. I would say that, uh, there's a great deal. Like I said earlier, um, it's going to be unsettling because, um, there are so many things, one of which being like, there are racial epithets all over this book. Um, and there are, there are actions that in the story, they're not, they're not based in a racial profiling way necessarily if you're giving them the benefit of the doubt, but they most definitely are. Um, so I think that this story could only happen, um, the way it does during the time period it's set in, but it's not so, I mean, just turn on any, any news source and you can see that, uh, that what they, what it goes through is definitely still occurring. So it's that whole like terror of the familiar thing. Uh, and it's, it, it really punches hard, especially when you, when you find that, um, the villains of the piece are, aren't nearly as flushed out as it would be to, uh, to another author who might be kind of Molly coddling the readers. So there you go. Those across the river, it is fantastic. Don't let anyone tell you that it's not horrific. It's absolutely horrific, but it comes from such a, uh, it comes from such a quiet, almost serene place that you're nowhere near ready for it, even when you're looking at it. And uh, yeah, the characters take you take you away from it. You're so interested in what they're doing that you're not necessarily not paying attention to what's going on, but you're so interested in them and the life and the people and the, the interactions that when it does happen, it just blows you away. So there you go. Um, I guess Monday again, you're going to be available. Okay. So, uh, unless something happens in between now and then, should be having another non-entry uh, on Monday, and yeah, definitely get back to me in the Gmail. Uh, I I had another uh, mail for Diabolical Index, but it just seems like everybody uses Gmail. Do you find? I mean, that's what I use. Yeah, it seems like everybody uses it, so I just made this and and this is attached to the the Questionable Index, so 
once I get that going, then it'll make sense for that too. So yeah, definitely read the book get back to me on that. And, um, I was thinking on the way up here. What's that now? Oh, okay. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> I was thinking, <laughs> I was thinking of something. I was like, ah, maybe I should have a, a better, um, a better closing thing. And the only thing I could come up with, it was just like, it was, it's such a dad joke. I don't, I don't even know, but well, no, no. I mean, I, I thought of one, but I mean, I guess, I guess you could say it's a riddle, but the one I was thinking of was, um, there's, you know, just remember there's only one C that grows larger when you read a book. Literacy. <laughs> oh my god I'm such a dipshit having a 12 inch nose is anatomically possible because at that point it becomes a foot that's great I like this but anyway yeah um, yeah. I actually spoke to everybody about the, going to the pun off in Austin next year but yeah uh, definitely uh, check out Diabolical Index on Anchor and everywhere else. Um, Anchor puts it on Spotify and Podbean and a bunch of places. But uh, that's a little bit later than us. So get to see you live here, audio only on those things. And hopefully with any luck, once I get my all my transfers and stuff happening on the regular, I'll be able to do my, uh, my prefixes again. And, you know, my little whatevers. My little supplementals. I'm making a separate, uh, separate area on the on the YouTube for the supplementals and interviews. And hopefully, with any luck, there will be some further interviews coming up in the next couple of months. Uh, I've got um, I've got some family stuff. I've got some uh, Midwest Horror Fest stuff coming up. So I'm going to have to kind of weave it in through everything else. But um, I'm so glad everybody showed up tonight. Hopefully you got something out of it. Hopefully um, you're interested in, in reading everything. I With these, I try to, I attempt to try to make it so that I talk about it. I talk about some of the things in it. I don't say so much that, you know, it's like the too long didn't read crap. I hate that shit. The TLDR shit. I hate that. So I try not to make it so that I'm giving the entire book away so that you don't have to read the book once you've seen, you know, the Diabolical Index. Hopefully, when you watch it, you go, oh, wow, that guy's an idiot. But what he was talking about sounds really interesting. So you just like go out and you buy the book or uh, go to your nearest library and give them a little bit of circulation so they can keep going. Um, there was a big debate the other night in my uh, my little comment stream, my feed, where, you know, Someone said someone put a, a receipt up of how much the money they saved in books by going to the library instead of buying books and you know. Of course there were comments of well, you know, those authors are out that money when they do that shit. And it's like they bought the damn books when they had went to put in the library. They're not any fucking money. Well, I mean, I guess they are a little bit. But anything that makes the library a viable resource is important. So you can do it all, man. Like I still get stuff at the library, and I buy books all the time. So visit your local library. Look for those across the river. Christopher Buhlman, uh, David Sedaris, 
Check him out too. I actually hadn't even heard of this one uh, by him. So, oop, darn it. Definitely check those out. I'm so Twitter pated. I'm just dropping books everywhere. Um, yeah, hopefully, uh, with any luck, there are still uh, goosebumps. Choose your own adventures to choose from for next week. So, I might put a poll up, or I might just choose it myself. The last time we did the poll. The one that we picked wasn't that great. So this last time I picked it myself and it ended up pretty pretty snazzy. I like Batwing Hall a lot. So, um, yeah, edit me uh, dropping the book out of that <laughs> live. So, anyhow, this is Diabolical Index for August 26th, 2019. Beware your human heart because this is where the pages of the Uncanny reside. And uh, Magic Squirrel Network, keep it squirreling. Wow, that was a great podcast that you just listened to, wasn't it, Mark? It certainly was. But if you want to listen to another great podcast, you should check out Pointless Discussions. Hi, I'm Paul Schroyer. And I'm Mark Reynolds. We're the hosts of the comedy improvised podcast, Pointless Discussions, which comes out every Tuesday. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, and anywhere you listen to podcasts. If you like comedy or improv, then we're the podcast for you. Join us every week as we go on an adventure that we don't even know is happening until it happens. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, or at www.magicsquirrelnetwork.com.